Welcome, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you... <laughs> glad you're here too, man. Hey, for those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are working through a sermon series, a little short mini-series we're calling A Theology of Sacred Things. Um, last week, we talked about what does it even mean for something to be sacred or to be holy, right? And, and this week and next week, we're going to talk about what um, in theology circles are called the Protestant sacraments. Um, it's really fancy language to say that this week we're going to talk about communion, and next week we're going to talk about baptism, right? Because as, as Protestants, if you don't know church history, as Protestants um, diverge from Catholicism, Catholicism had a larger number of, of, of sacraments, and the Protestant faith affirms two sacraments, communion union and baptism. But before we get there, um, I do have a quick announcement for you is, is this, is um, we are constantly um, looking for in need of welcoming anybody that wants to help with um, youth or kids ministry. Uh, the thing that's been happening as uh, things have ramped back up post-COVID as more people show up and they show up more often. Um, in fact, just a year ago, uh, for our kids ministry, if you were in person, we had two classrooms open for two services, right? And, um, and sometimes those ones like had almost nobody in them. Now we're pretty consistently running pretty full classrooms, three time, three services, three classrooms, right? So two classrooms, you have to have two volunteers, two services, that's eight volunteers a week, multiplied by four, that's 32 slots you have to fill on a four-week Sunday. On a five-week Sunday, that's a five-Sunday month, that's 40 slots. Now, we have to fill 12 slots, which means we have to fill as many as 60 slots a month with volunteers. And so if you would like to, um, you can text mom at the 97,000 and you can follow some prompts in there and we'd, we'd love to help you get connected. Um, uh, we love all those who help with our kids ministry. It's such a gift and such a blessing. So if nothing else, even if you're not in place, you can help. Um, when you leave here, walk down the kids wing and find somebody in one of those classrooms, just tell them thank you. Um, they give up their time in this room uh, on Sunday morning so often to serve us and we're so grateful for that. Okay, so I got, I got a question for you and this is gonna be a response. I need, I need at least a couple people to be bold enough to, to go on record, okay? So here's my question. What is, for you, the holiday that is most overrated? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Uh, someone said that first service sitting right next to their wife, and I said, we also offer marriage counseling. Um, <laughs> Valentine's Day. Okay, Valentine's Day, super overrated. Oh, what else? Anybody else? Any? Christmas. Christmas. Well, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Jesus born. Not a big deal. Hey, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, uh, I'm giving him a hard time because he's my future brother-in-law. So anyways, um, Halloween, right? Here's mine. Okay, I'm going to give you mine. Thanksgiving, okay? Here's my argument, ready? Most overrated, Thanksgiving. Tell me one food that you eat on Thanksgiving that you couldn't eat on March 3rd. You know they sell cranberry sauce in the store year-round. I know you, this is my dad in the front row too, so I can harass him. He wouldn't know because he doesn't go grocery shopping. They sell it year-round. <laughs> he doesn't know where cranberries come from. They just come from something my mom puts out on the table, right? Um, I understand like 70 years ago when you could only get oranges in December, right? That like there were certain foods that you could only get seasonally and it was like, if it was a Thanksgiving thing, it was like, oh, at Thanksgiving, you can only get the, with global supply chains and our system, all kinds of, you can eat anything anytime you want. I think Thanksgiving is the most overrated holiday. It's, it, right? 
So I was, I was sharing my opinion with someone else, which if you spend any time with me, um, is more of arguing my opinion um, and telling someone else why they were wrong. And, and I was telling this person, you know, Thanksgiving is the most overrated holiday. And, and they said to me, they said, yeah, yeah, Thanksgiving is the most overrated holiday. Because you know what? Why can't we be thankful 365 days a year? And I said, you're wrong. Thanksgiving's important. Because in that conversation, here's what I realized. We could be, but we're forgetful people. Aren't we? We're forgetful people. We so quickly forget all the list of things we have to be thankful for that we have to set a day out each year where we stop everything else, hang out with family members we don't like so that we can celebrate and be grateful and thankful when we could just every day of the year, but we are forgetful people. In fact, here's the interesting thing. One of the most common commands that, that uh, God gives the people of the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew people, one of the most common commands he gives them is this command. Remember. Over and over and over again. God's command to them isn't be moral, be kind, don't kill people. He says those things, right? Don't steal from your neighbor. He says those things. But one of the most often repeated commands of God, requirements of God is this, remember. Because God's the one who formed us. He made us. He knows that all it takes is you walking out of the kitchen to forget why you left the kitchen. That we are forgetful people. In fact, I've got this whole list right here. I got three pages of verses. We're going to go through each one of them. We're going to look at historical context and context of the individual passage and understand why it's important. I'm kidding. But I do just want to look at three. And, and I want to look at three. I want you to see three times that God tells us people to remember. And I want you to see if you see a commonality in the commands. Because God, here's a little hint. God does more than command his people just to remember and think about it. So look, here we go. You ready? Numbers 15, if you're someone who likes to follow along or you want to follow notes later, Numbers 15 verse 39 says this. I'm going to start in 38 because it'll make more sense that way. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put on the tassels of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. You see right there? To remember all the commandments of the Lord. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may, here it is again, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God, so that you might remember. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. It's going to be a little bit to the right if you're following along. If not, not a big deal. Let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. He says this. You shall remember 
You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Remember my commands. So put tassels on your clothes, and every time you see the tassels, remember my commands. Every seventh day, stop working so that you would remember that I'm the God who delivered you from slavery. Here's the third one, Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, take, talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gate, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. Remember. Almost every single time God commands his people to remember, he demands that they do something with their body. Here's the thing. Remembering, remembering isn't just a mind game. When God commands his people, he knows this. He knows this about it. In fact, um, uh, recently I read a book, maybe some of you have read. It was, um, it's a really great book, and in the psychology world, it's been um, a very transformative book. Um, and uh, they, they've, they've celebrated that it kind of changes the way we think about psychology in a lot of ways. And in reality, if you read it, it's just really a um, recognition, a, a, a re understanding of, of ancient wisdom, of the, of the way God created us to be. And, and the title of the book is called The Body Keeps the Score. And, and here's what psychologies begin to recognize and realize even more and more and more, is that we are integrated beings, that, that what happens in our mind, in our thoughts, affects our heart, affects our emotions. And what happens in our emotions actually affects our body. That what happens in our body affects the way that we think. Did you know here, if you're having a bad day, here's a, here's a little trick. If you're having a bad day, take a pencil and put it in your mouth. I'm not making this up. You can test this later, okay? Put it in your mouth and bite it. And it will make you happy. You know why? Because I'm nuts? No, because it pinches a nerve in your face that simulates to your body that you're smiling and it'll, re re it'll release endorphins in your brain. That what happens in your body changes the thoughts you have with your mind. That what happens in your mind changes your emotions, that we are all integrated. And so, so here's the thing. When God tells his people to remember, he doesn't just say, here's what I want you to do. Every once in a while, I want you to take a moment and just think. Just in the quiet of wherever you are, think back to Egypt. And think back to slavery. And, and, and think about Think about the, the crossing of the Red Seas and, and how I defeated the greatest army the world have ever known. And, and, and think about the desert and the wandering and how I led you across the Jordan into the promised land and we defeated the enemies and, and settled you in a land flowing. Just think about those things. The brilliance, the beauty, the profoundness, the commands of God is that when he calls us to remember, he calls us to remember with our bodies. 
He tells them to remember in the way that they dress so that every single time those tassels hit their shin as they walk, that every single time they see someone else walking around with a little blue tassel hanging off the end of the corner, that they would remember the commands of the Lord. That every single week they would have to take a day and just stop. And for some of us, just one day a week sounds like absurd that they only had, but they lived in a society and a culture that worked seven days a week, worked 365 days a year, and God commanded them, even in the peak of harvest, that they had to stop and they had to sit and they had to rest and they had to remember that it was God who provided for them all things, that they had to use their body to remind their heart and their mind of God's goodness and his provision. The last one we read, it talks about them um, putting it on their hands and, and writing it on their foreheads and writing it on their doorposts. Maybe you've seen some pictures of Orthodox Jews, and, and, and you'll see sometimes they'll have these little boxes right on their forehead, right? This is a very literal interpretation of what this command is telling them to do. They would write the commands, the laws of God, on pieces of paper, and they would put them on the box so that they would carry around this weight head in front of their mind, reminding them constantly of who God was and what they called him to. They would put these things on their hands so that, here's the the brilliance of it, every single time you're to reach out for something, you see the commands of God written on your hand. That written on the doorpost, that every single time they leave the safety of their home and they walk out into an unknown world uh, that holds an unknown future, that they would walk under the commands and the provisions of God and they would remind themselves that they would themselves be marked by the physical act of seeing, of reading. Every single time that God commands his people, almost every single time God commands his people to remember something, he doesn't just tell them to think about it. He tells them to do something with their body because the way he made us, we are a people who, whose spirit and, and uh, whose, whose, whose mind and heart and body are all integrated together. In fact, um, here's a little, uh, this may surprise you with my very um, uh, shy personality that when I was in high school, I did theater, right? And um, uh, I, I did a couple productions where I had to learn a lot of lines. And uh, learning lines is really hard. And here's a little trick. Maybe just like, here's, here's a way you can translate. If you want to like learn more scripture, right? If you want to memorize more verses of the Bible, here's a really helpful trick, okay? Instead of just sitting here and going, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to learn this, right? Here's a really simple trick that will help solidify it in your mind. If you read it out loud and write it with your hand, if you use your mouth to say the words, not just think about them, not just, but if you say the words and you physically use your hand, you will, you will memorize Bible verses immensely quicker because the way God built us, you walk into a room, you smell a smell, and immediately your body shoots your mind into a place of memories of remembering something, right? You been there? The way God made us is that we are to be a people who remember with the whole of our body. In fact, sometimes in scripture, uh, God, uh, the psalmist will say, he will command his heart to remember. And you know how he commands his heart to remember? By worshiping, by using his body in a physical act of celebrating and remembering God's goodness. He's reminding his mind and his heart of God's goodness and provision. One of the most important celebrations to the Jewish people is, is a celebration called Passover. 
right? And uh, it's a reminder and celebration of this very act of God delivering his people out of Egypt. In fact, um, one of the, the names that is often used of the people of, of the Old Testament um, is that God will say over and over again, I'm, you, uh, I, you are the people that, they're the people that God brought out of Egypt, right? This was, became their identifying characteristic of who they were, that God delivered them out of Egypt. And uh, in Exodus, oh, sorry, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16, with this in mind, I want, you, I want you to see if you hear God's command to remember with their mind and to do with their body, okay? Deuteronomy 16 is one of the spots that tells them how to celebrate the Passover, and it says this. Observe, observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. That's a really important detail. Just think about that and remember that. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd and the place where the Lord chose to establish his name. So look, we're already setting up a pattern. He tells them to remember, to observe, but he doesn't just say, just think about it. He says, you're going to do something. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to take an animal and you're going to sacrifice it. Now just think about it. And then look at this. He says this, you shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Look, God, God just says it right here. It's, it's so incredible how, like, the brilliance of God, right? He says, so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Every single Almost every single command of God, he commands them not just to think about it, but to do something with their body. So every single morning when they wake up, right, and they want to have a cup of coffee, and they want to have a pastry, and they walk out in their kitchen, and they start brewing the coffee, and they go to reach for the pastry, they're reminded the, the container's empty. There's no pastry there. And they got to eat this, like, dry, crunchy, hard, unleavened stuff. So that every time they take that unleavened bread, they would remind their bodies and their mind and their hearts of the God who delivered them out, who brought them out in haste, who, who they didn't have time for the sourdough to rise to make really great, good, luxurious bread. But they had to eat these crackers of unleavened bread. Verse four, seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all the territory. And none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. That sounds like a weird uh, command. God says basically you're going to sacrifice an animal and then you got to eat all the meat. And here's why. Because, he wants, because normally they would sacrifice an animal and then depending on the size of the animal, they would keep the meat and they would eat off that meat for days or a whole week to provide for their family. But God says it's not going to be that way because in Egypt, when you sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost, you didn't get to sit there and like save the lamb for the next day because you're leaving. And so you got to eat it all so that, so that when the time comes for you to leave, you're not carrying rotting meat out with you. And they would wake up the next morning without any of the meat that they sacrificed to idols waiting. Maybe at three in the morning, they walk out, want a little midnight snack, think they're going to go get themselves some lamb. And they walk over to the refrigerator, and they open the refrigerator, and there's nothing in there. So there'd be a reminder in their bodies of the haste that they left with, the lack of preparedness that they had. 
Verse five, you are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns, which the Lord your God has given you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. Now look at this. You shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset. Now, now the, the writer's gonna tell us in a second, but can, can, you, can you think about why maybe they're to sacrifice? Well, let me ask this question. Um, on 364 days of the year, when, did, when would they sacrifice? At night or during the day? During the day, it's logical, right? During the day, when there's light, they would sacrifice during the day. One day a year, God tells them that they have to sacrifice in the dark. Can you remember why? Because it was in the night that they left. Can you think about the, the difference of experience would be? 364 days a year, you go to sacrifice, you go to sacrifice animals, you go to sacrifice grain, you go to the temple to worship, and you go when the sun's shining, it's a beautiful day, and one day a year, you walk up in the darkness, and you hear the singing of the songs of the Passover. And you walk up in the dark and you walk up to a temple mount that um, the stone had, had this um, reflective nature to it. So in the day, it would just shine the, the light. But at night, there would have been lamps all around and you see the flickering of the lights of the lamps and you walk in to rejoice in celebration. There would be this very visceral reaction to this one moment a year that you came into the temple and it remind all of who you are of God's goodness and his provision. When God commands us to remember, he almost always commands us to not just remember with our minds, but to remember with our bodies. You shall sacrifice the Passover at evening at sunset. At the time that you came out of Egypt, you shall cook and eat it in the place which the Lord God chooses in the morning. You are to return to your tents why they have homes, why they go into tents. Because in this moment, they would be reminded that this was the way that they lived. With their bodies, they would remember. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord, and you shall do no work on it. Again, the act of remembering is not just something they do with their mind, but something that God commands them to do with the whole of their body. There's a lot of interesting traditions around the Passover. Um, they have, you know, bitter herbs that they would have to do at different times. There'd be certain things they'd have to sing and certain passages they would read. One of the interesting traditions um, was they would leave a chair empty right? They would have one extra chair and, and they would leave that chair empty for Elijah because uh, they would say, um, there, there's a great prophet coming again, right? And, and they would talk about him as being Elijah, but um, in Jewish writings, we, we often knew that they knew that they expected that it was someone like Elijah, someone greater than Elijah was coming. A new Elijah was going to come. And, and they would have a chair prepared because they believed that that Elijah would come during the Passover, right? And so they'd have an empty chair just in case just in case it was your house that Elijah came to on the Passover, you wanted to be prepared and like, hey, we got a chair. Wait, you don't, you don't, want, you don't want the returning great prophet to show up to your house and be like, oh, we didn't plan for you. Oh, sorry, here, 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 here. You can sit right here, right? We got a little stool for you, right? That they'd be prepared. They were waiting for, anticipating this great 
prophet who would come and, and, and invite the people back to the kingdom of God, invite them back to the wholeness and the intimacy that, that God had designed, that God had planned for. And there began to be this intertwining of this prophet and, and this one coming that was, that was like a son of man. And then comes Jesus. And on his last Passover, he celebrated together as he begins the inauguration of his kingdom through the cross, he sits together with his disciples full of the images of redemption and, and, and salvation and, and hope and freedom and, and bonds being broken. And he sits and he celebrates this meal together with them. But he begins to paint a different picture for him, a, a different type of Egypt, a different type of slavery, a, a different type of, of bonds being broken, a different type of Red Sea that, that we walk through to find resurrection, a different kind of wilderness wandering we experience in our life, a different type of crossing into the Jordan, crossing the Jordan into the promised land, a different type of people, a different type of hope. And in that moment he, is when he takes a glass of wine. And here's the interesting thing. Luke tells us that um, when he takes a glass of wine, he tells us twice that Jesus takes a glass of wine, right? Um, in, in Jewish Passover, they would actually take four glasses of wines. At different points in time, you would have four pours of wine, and you would drink each one, and you'd say different prayers, and, and you'd say different things. But the interesting thing is that, um, as, as, as Jewish thinkers have pondered on, is God actually never told them why they would have four glasses, Right? Um, he doesn't say, you know, the first class is because... Now, over the years, and in extra-biblical literature, they've developed theories and ideas about why. And a lot of them come from this Exodus 8 passage. In Exodus 8, God makes four promises to his people. Before they're going to leave, he, he makes four promises to them. He says, the first one is, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. Right? I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you out of the bondage that you're in. I'm going to take you out of slavery. But then the second promise is, he says, I'm going to rescue you. If you remember their story, they end up at the edge of the wilderness. They end up at the Red Sea. And, and the, the greatest army the world had ever seen is coming to press down on them. And God has to rescue them as they walk through the Red Sea. And he crushes the army in the midst of the Red Sea without them even raising a, a sword against them. Right? That he will rescue them. Uh, the third promise is that he will redeem them. That, that despite all their rebellion and all their brokenness and all their sin and all their wandering, even in the wilderness, when God delivers them and leads them out into the wilderness... And they continue to rebel that God will redeem them, that he will buy them back, that he will pay the cost for the rebellion. And then the last promise is that I will take you into the promised land, that I will take you into the land I've prepared for you. And we don't know at what point Jesus takes the wine, but we know he does. And he takes the wine and he blesses it and he says, this is my blood, a blood of a new covenant, a blood of a new remembering, a, a blood of a new people, a, a glass that, that we partake in week after week over and over again, that, that we remind ourselves with our bodies, that if we take that juice or that wine, that we are to remind ourselves of God's goodness and his provision and his salvation. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. We're going to use our bodies to remind ourselves of God's goodness but before we do, I, I want to ask you to think for yourself. I don't know what glass of wine Jesus was holding, but I think his salvation is large enough to assure all the same promises 
of Exodus 8. And I wonder, I wonder for you, like what is the Egypt, what is the slavery, what is the bondage that Jesus has rescued you from? Maybe in the last weeks, last months, last year, what is the thing that that God has delivered you out of oppression under? I wonder. Probably wasn't the Egyptian army chasing after you against the Red Sea. But what is it that God's rescued you from? What is it, what is it in your life that felt overwhelming and, and oppressive and, and just such weight hanging over your soul that it was hard to navigate through life day by day? Remember that season. Remember the God who delivered you. He promises to redeem, to pay the cost, to buy back. I wonder, can you think about, can you remember what is it? What is it that Jesus paid the cost for you? Not just for your sins in general, but like what specific, where did God bring life and hope and joy where there was darkness and death and brokenness? And the last promise is, he says, I will take you into a new land. I wonder what it is in your life that you can look at and you can see God's goodness and provision that he's been leading you and he's been bringing life and hope and healing and salvation and redemption and newness to this part of your life. Jesus says this in Luke 22. He says, do this in remembrance of me. If you didn't get a chance yet to grab one of these, you can scoot out real quick and grab one. If you're joining us online, I hope you can find something and you can join with us as well. But even here in that command, he says, do this to remember me. Take this bread and hold it and taste it and and savor it. So that as you do with your body, you might remind your mind and your heart. Because here's the interesting thing. Sometimes, sometimes we have to command our heart and our mind to remember God's goodness. And it is the beautiful good gift of communion that we come week after week to take this piece of bread. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. And to remember One of my favorite verses, it says, he who gave his own son for you, what more will he not do for you? So whatever obstacles you find in your life today, whatever whatever lacking you are experiencing in your life, whatever things you're stressed about, whatever whatever, uh, shortfall seems to be coming up in your life, that you'd remember that the God who provided in the wilderness that the God who gave his own son for you is here today in your midst and he is sufficient in all things. Let us eat together. Jesus took a glass of wine and he blessed it and he passed it amongst his disciples and he said, this is my blood spilt for you, blood of a new covenant not of a covenant of lambs, the the blood of lambs smeared over doorposts, the bloods of lambs sacrificed year after year after year, but the perfect blood of the lamb 
to cover all the brokenness in your soul, all the brokenness of your past, of your present, and of your future. And so this morning, may we remember as we drink together the blood of Jesus that called us out of slavery, that rescued us from the violence, that redeemed us from our sinfulness, and has invited us into life. Will you drink with me?